Of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. Over the next hour, we'll be recommending some great books and discussing our favourite reads. We'll be chatting with Jonathan Crane, whose fabulous new novel is out now. And we'll be relaxing in the sunshine with some books on gardens. Good morning. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be celebrating the world of books with publishing news, new releases, uh, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. So thank you very much for joining us today. So over the next um, hour, we've got, um, so what have we got up? Well, I've been talking to Jonathan Crane about his new book, uh, We Need to Talk, which is out in bookshops now. And with summer here, we're spending lots. crime writing goes to Martina Cole. Now she's the long reigning queen of cream crime drama um, and is a publishing powerhouse. Her last book was No Mercy which was published last spring and her next book actually out in October which is called Loyalty. But in total, she's written 25 novels and uh, has published, all published by Headline. So, Julian, I think you used to work with Headline. Um, well, no, no, I didn't, actually, because um, uh, I used to work for um, Hodder, um, but uh, then they, to- they took over the company. 
Right, okay. So anyway, Martina's published uh, with Headline and 17 of her books have reached number one and her books have collectively spent over four years in the bestseller charts, which is brilliant. Fantastic, uh, really fantastic. So total sales stand at over 17 million copies, which makes her Britain's best-selling female crime writer and uh, The Faithless, one of her best-selling uh, books, became the first British female adult audience novelist to break the £50 million sales mark since records began. Fantastic amount. Know, amazing. amazing. So her books have been translated into 31 languages and adapted for multiple stage plays. Wow. Well, the gold uh, dagger for the best crime novel of the year has been won for We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker, published by Zaffer. Uh, And it's a fantastic story um, set in a small town in America. And its central character is a really unforgettable 13-year-old girl called Duchess. And alongside, there's a cast of great characters and personalities. And it's quite a really memorable read. Um, And it has all the... Elements as there's a family breakdown, there's attachment, guilt, and there's redemption. Excellent. <laughs> so the uh, Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award goes to Michael Robottom. Now, I think Ian Fleming, obviously famous for James Bond, mm, he said yes. there was one essential criterion for a good thriller, and that one simply has to want to turn the pages. You know those books where it's three o'clock in the morning, you're desperate to go asleep, but you've yep. got to read the next page to find Absol- out what's happening. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Keeps you up. <laughs> absolutely. So anyway, so Michael Robottom's won the award this year for When She Was Good, which uh, was published by Sphere. He's an Australian thriller writer and he's previously won the gold dagger for best book twice. So we know that that's going to be a great book. Oh, fantastic. Well, I did actually work for Sphere. That was the, the first ah. company I worked uh, um, uh, in tra- general trade publishing. Now, the, the Dagger in the Library Award, this is an award that is um, voted for by librarians, and it went to the author Peter May. Now, he's a Scottish author, and he's um, very well known, not only as a novelist, but also for his film and television work. Uh, and the chairman of the judges, Sue Wilkinson, said, Peter May infuses his books with a real sense of place, whether it be China, France or the Hebrides. His books are tense, atmospheric and complex, but always utterly absorbing. Brilliant. I think our librarians are our unsung heroes, aren't they? They are, yes. You know, when you think about it, I mean, along with, with booksellers themselves, you know, the librarian has the scope of everything. Yeah. But like a bookseller, you've got, he or she's got to know everything in the library, from whether it's a children's book to, to something on nuclear physics or whatever there might be in the reference to the fiction and so forth. Yeah, and um, all throughout the ages as well. Absolutely, so absolutely, yeah. yes. Right. So after all this tense crime book reading we've been doing, uh, we now need to relax and I want to tell you about a book that's received lots of publicity recently and it's called Why Meditate Because It Works and it's published by Yellow Kite. Now Gillian Lavender who's the author is a popular meditation guru and she works with a host of big names in business and in sport and celebrity and entertainment and she believes that um meditation is really important and anybody can benefit so instead of charging the two thousand pounds which i think she um charges her client um her celebrity clients we're able to buy this book and actually benefit so julian do you meditate uh no 
<laughs> okay, my next question. Do you think you should? Uh, you're going to tell me I should, aren't I you? I think, why not? <laughs> well, why not? Okay, give me a crash course. Okay. <laughs> I think it's really important. I think we could all do with just spending five minutes or three minutes. It doesn't even have to be five minutes. Mm-hmm. Just to relax. And in the book, um, Gillian gives us a very quick little taster. So all you've just got to do is just sit down or you lie down mm-hmm. if you want you don't have to do anything special with your hands you just need to be somewhere quiet and comfortable and mm-hmm. then just breathe and you just oh. have to breathe slowly in for four counts and then out for six it's as simple as that and just do that for two minutes and you'll feel yourself really calming down it's just absolutely fantastic something to do with um calming the nervous system which allows all our cells to rejuvenate. But it's a brilliant book. And I've got to say, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And I do this every night before I go to sleep. And well, I've just done it. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'm on up. next. <laughs> Wake up. You've got a programme to do. <laughs> Heather, as you know, I, I really like history. Uh, and I read a story um, in the press the other day, which really rather shocked me. And it's about the state of our school children's um, historical knowledge. Uh, and it appears a large number of school children think Alexander the Great is fictitious. Sherlock Holmes is real, and here's a corker, uh, that the Second World War ended sometime in the 1960s. That obviously means that you're a very, very old man. Ah, Well, that is true, that is true. Now, with this shocking state of affairs, um, things are going to be changed, and uh, there's an author that's come to um, the rescue, uh, and it's a series um, published by Penguin called The Adventures in Time by Dominic Sandbrook. Mm -hmm. Now, he's a journalist, and many of our listeners may have uh, read his columns in the Sunday Times. But he's also the author of a modern um, history series, which he writes mostly on the 1950s. But this time, he's turned his attention to bringing the past alive uh, um, for children, concentrating on, on, on children. And he's written a series of books, which are very all fun and exciting, um, dramatic stories, colourful characters, which, of course, history is littered with, and thrilling cliffhangers. And they're all grounded in fact. And the first two are now available, published by Penguin, so storm off to your um, local bookshop to buy them, but not until after 12 o'clock. Absolutely. Well, I think that sounds brilliant because I think it's really important to get your history because if we don't know about our past, how can we influence our future? Exactly. I mean, that, that is the whole point. And also the point of history, there are lessons there to be learned if people will only actually pay attention to history. Quite right too. So, talking about history, um, our Euro Cup success wasn't quite the historical um, adventure we wanted it to see, but I think it was fantastic. I think mm-hmm. our boys did really well. I think getting yep. the semi-finalists was brilliant. And um, to celebrate, Pan Macmillan is giving away 20,000 free copies of Marcus Rashford's book, You Are a Champion. So Great. there was a massive crowdfunding campaign that sprang up um, this week um, after the Euro finals. So that's really good. It is really good news. And that then linked with the fantastic um, uh, efforts of our, our, our Olympic team as well. On yes. Top. 
Now, um, there's a fan in the news um, world. Um, we have a little piece about authors' events and festivals. Um, most live author events um, can now be operated to full capacity, and the rules on wearing masks and social distancing and implementing any COVID passports will be down to the individual um, organisers of the venues. Um, I'm delighted that the Literary Festival in Henley will be going ahead this autumn, and Heather, you, I believe, will be chatting to Harriet, the organiser, a little later in the programme. Yes, absolutely. And I'm really excited that literary festivals are coming back online, yes. as it were. Yes. I mean, they were brilliant doing them on um, over Zoom, but it's not quite the same as being in a room with someone. Well, it isn't really, because you've always got that sort of crackle of, 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 of um, atmosphere of people in anticipation and yes. so forth. Whereas, obviously, Zoom, yes, you can go back and forth, but it is a little sterile in, yes. in that respect. I mean, yes. it served a purpose, but we need now to be, be in uh, live venues once more. Yeah, absolutely. So this is River Radio, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. So coming up in the show, we'll be discussing those authors who've written about gardens. And as you know, we'll be talking about the plans for the Henley Literary Festival this year. But first, let's go to a conversation I've had with Jonathan Crane, whose first book has just been published. It's a meticulously observed novel with flashes of wicked comedy. It's called We Need to Talk and has been published by Lightning Books and offers a jigsaw puzzle of unwitting connections for the reader to assemble. And the finished picture is an unflinchingly honest portrait of multi-jobbing gig economy Middle England on the eve of COVID. But before we talk to Jonathan, let's hear a bit of the book. We Need to Talk by Jonathan Crane She'd only just come home after her yoga class The lazy October light flowed in through the French windows Over the last few days a soft heat had returned Miriam took a drink from her water bottle and considered the kitchen table The clear plastic folder containing worksheets and a notepad Her Spanish homework It had to be done by Friday's class and it was Tuesday already Next door's washing machine rumbled faintly, beginning its spin cycle. She took another long sip of water. Then, as she screwed on the bottle top, the doorbell chimed. She breezed out of the kitchen and through the lounge. In the small entrance hall, she unlocked the front door and pulled it open. Lydia was standing on the pavement. She was wearing large sunglasses. "'You ready, then?' Lydia asked. Cars lined the street behind her. Sunlight glittered in the upper windows of the terrace houses opposite. Ready for what? The show home. I've booked an appointment. While they were driving to Wisley on Sunday, Lydia had been complaining about the glut of local building, especially that new estate at the top of town. Miriam had suggested they view the show home together and see what it was like. Let me get changed, Miriam protested. I've just got in. You'll be fine, Lydia said. If we go now, we can miss the school traffic. They strolled through the brick and flint gateposts. Six pink-roofed houses were clustered round a brief stretch of unmarked road. Beyond that lay the remains of a field, stripped and levelled. After that, the woodland took over, climbing the hillside. They advanced up the show home's block-paved driveway. A large wooden hoarding, emblazoned with the developer's name, dominated the meagre front garden. We're a bit early, Miriam observed. Lydia removed her sunglasses. 
it'll be fine, she said, and palmed open the front door. Miriam followed her into the hallway. Light channeled through from the bright kitchen at the end of the corridor, but it was still a dark space. There were voices leaking out from the lounge to the right. It's the perfect choice for a first-time buyer, someone was saying. Miriam surveyed the decor. Grey walls, pale blue carpet, white ceiling and skirtings. It's not very big, Lydia said, opening the understairs cupboard. A young woman appeared in the doorway. She was wearing a black skirt and blazer. Heather, her name badge stated. Hello, ladies, she said, clamping her hands together. Can I help? Miriam pressed the light switch. Overhead, the bulb kindled. With a three o'clock, Lydia said, turning as she closed the cupboard. Dixon, she added. Sorry, but I'm actually with a client, Heather began. Don't let us stop you, Lydia cut in, raising a hand. We'll show ourselves round. Spinning away, she struck for the kitchen. Miriam pushed her bag straps up her shoulder and followed. Jonathan, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So I've just finished and enjoyed your very first book, We Need to Talk. So tell me about the book. Describe it for, for everyone. Well, the book is set in a town called Sudley, and it's a fictional town on the Hampshire and Surrey border, and it's set in 2019 to 2020. And it's a story about the town and its people. You see, the town is changing with new building developments, with industry falling away and with a failing high street. And that's then set against a backdrop of a changing country with COVID approaching and Brexit. But within the town, we have a load of characters who are facing choices and changes of their own. And the book shows us these characters' lives. So we've got shop workers, we've got doctors, receptionists and temps, we've got cleaners, bar staff, artists, university lecturers, district councillors, carpet salesmen, we've got the old and the young, and they're all brushing up against one another. And they're all connecting in some way. And it's really looking at life from a lot of different angles and the stories, the, the characters build together to, to form not just a snapshot of the town and its people, but also a snapshot of the country and the society that we live in. And that's it, really. It's about a town and its people. It's about life, but it's also about a lot more things as well. Sort of hopes and aspirations and some of them were that's funny. It, yeah. Someone, I was crying. I think it was a George. Okay. Oh, got me in tears. <laughs> yeah, I think that I really enjoyed that sort of that blend between the humour where it, you're going to see the funny side of life. And then there's the moving bits. It's like, you know, you've got maybe you're talking about bereavement and this is the ply of life, isn't it? So I, I saw it described as Alan Akebourne-esque. So I think that's oh. a really good description. Yeah, I like that one, to be honest. I thought that was really kind of them. I thought you would do somehow. <laughs> so are those characters still living in your brain? Do you think uh, COVID will have impacted on them too much? That's that's a lovely question, actually, because I was thinking I was going to start writing the next book of them almost straight away because they do, they do live in my brain. They are still there. And I was going to start writing the next book immediately, but I thought I'm going to leave it a little while because I want to see how... COVID pans out. I want to see, because I think the country is going to change. 
a little bit as we go forward. We might see things like rising unemployment. We might see all sorts of things. So I think taking it over the span of a couple of years for the next book might be a really good way. But I think COVID will have impacted them. I think their lives will have changed. Now I'm really interested to see where they go next. I think society has changed, I fear. I, I think so. See, I'm conscious that you're, you've got an MA in creative writing. And in fact, that's your job as well, isn't it? That's right. I, I actually did um, an MA in literature and then a PhD in creative writing. Oh, no, 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 not a problem. It's, Stop. It's, let's not go there. <laughs> I try not to be too sort of about all the things because I think it's important to remain human rather than being an academic and abstracting yourself too much. I do teach. I teach in universities, but I also go into prisons and help people to write stories in there as part of a reform or a rehabilitative process. I also do do work out in communities. So it's lovely to help people to write and express themselves, really. Yeah, I'm fascinated, actually, about your prison work and your community work. And I want to go yeah. back to that later. But before, I just want to talk fine. specifically about your writing. So you've obviously, ta- as a job, you talk mm-hmm. about how to write. And now, mm-hmm. obviously, as, a, as an individual, you are writing. So how much mm-hmm. did that help or hinder uh, what you were doing? I think the studying of it was fantastic because I think that what it did, it gave me the time and the space to actually find my own voice. And I had from one lecturer when I was learning, doing my PhD, and they gave me an absolutely invaluable piece of advice. And this is why going and having creative writing classes can be brilliant, actually. And they just said, show through action. And that made a massive difference because all of a sudden it just turned the key and it unlocked it for me. The actual writing, though, that's very much, you're out on your own doing that. And you go and you get on with it. You learn your craft and then you write. What's the really nice thing about teaching it, though, is that you can go and share the things that you learn. And you can go and help the next generation along, the next people who have aspirations, who have hopes towards writing. So it all welds together, really. And, of course, one of your characters was a (laughs) writing. Indeed. So we're not going to talk about any sort of reference there in terms of you being in the book. There might be a little bit of me. I'm not good. I will neither confirm nor deny that, to be honest, Heather. So were you always a writer? No. Well, when I started off when I was young, what, 46 now, when I was younger, I hoped to be a writer. But I also loved music. And I went off and I indulged my music side for maybe 15 years and I did that until I was probably about 33. I worked lots of bad jobs, lived in lots of house shares, moved around all over. It was an education in itself. I released a couple of albums and then I thought at some point I want to go back to who I was initially, where I started from and I came back and started doing the writing again, probably when I was mid-30s, and then I started to get more serious about it. So as a musician, were you writing your songs, though? Yes, I was doing the composing, and I was working in collaboration with a friend called Dave Smith, who's excellent, and he's still out there making music, I think. But I mean, that, that's so, so you're writing your music, so you're writing Absolutely. the lyrics. So Absolutely, and I think sometimes you can think about a bit of a, well, not necessarily lyrics, a lot of them were instrumental, but you can still think about the shape of a story and the shape of a piece of music 
how you've got that movement through a piece of a piece of writing, how you've got your beginning, it builds, you've got almost your middle eight, then you've got your outro, and there's a shape to it that carries the reader, the listener through. So there's a lot of links really between them. So instead of saying, have you always been writing? The answer is you've always been a story. In a sense, yeah, that's exactly it, I think. That's I think lovely. so. I, I think we all are to some degree, though, aren't we? We all are telling our own stories or whatever in some in some way, shape or form. All the, all the time, which is yeah. why I think it's really interesting that you go out into the communities, into prisons, because I think people mm. need to help reshape their story at times, don't they? I think that's exactly it. I mean, you can do the reshaping and almost getting a new view of yourself and reshaping expectations of yourself by discovering I can express myself well, I can entertain someone, I can speak, I can tell a story, I can engage. It's connected ultimately between if one edits a story, and editing is a massive part of writing, you can ultimately edit yourself. And if you then start editing a piece of writing, that links into things like, can you make a change? Can you do something differently? So telling the story of your life, you can rewrite it. You can start again. So there are huge links through there. And also I thought in your book, but also in life, different people's interpretations of the same thing obviously change depending on your perspective. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's something I really wanted to sort of look at. And it's almost, almost as well taking in... I don't want to get sort of too bound up in a discussion of class, but sort of some people looking from a secure middle class perspective and saying, OK, that's life. They've still got their troubles. That's not undermining any of that. They've still got difficulties that everyone's got to overcome. And then you've got a different set of horizons or perspectives from a younger working class people who may be struggling to get work and them seeing life from different angles. It's something that absolutely fascinates me, I think. Yes. So something for the future then. Lots lots to work on. There really is. It's almost like a project for life. So tell me about your road to publication. How did that differ from what you anticipated? The road to publication was long and winding. Where I had written a version of this book for a PhD and I had sent it out to publishers, to agents and I had probably met with a couple of years when people said, we're not sure what to do with this. And you get to a point when you're asking, I'm not even sure if I'm, I've taken the right path. And then all of a sudden, there was a chink and someone came back and said, we'd like you to make this into a novel. We'd like you to, to work with this. And this was eye-lightning books. But I think the lesson in there was to keep going, keep believing, keep hope. Keep going for it, because in the end, it may well work, but you've got to keep believing in yourself. So then, after I Lightning Books came back to me, I went through and I reshaped the whole thing, and I added some extra chapters, and I made a novel out of it, because originally it was working primarily in interlinked short stories, which you can still see that uh, coming through the book now. But then making a shape through the whole and adding connections between the pieces, the chapters, and then that took about six months to do and then went through all the copy editing and all that stuff. And that was a learning process because already you're starting to get this outside view of how somebody else is viewing your work rather than you who've lived within the work for two years 
or three years or four years or however long. So that was really helpful. And that is an, almost an act of collaboration at that point, but it was a long road to get to publication. Yeah. Yes, long and winding indeed by the side. <laughs> yeah, indeed, yeah. So can we rec- just recommend We Need to Talk by Jonathan Craig, which is uh, published by Lightning Books and is available in your bookshops now. This is River Radio, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather Adams and me, Julian Ashton. Thank you for joining us. Later in the show, we'll be discussing books about gardens. But first, Heather has been chatting to Harriet Reed Ryan, the Programme Director of the Henley Literary Festival, which will be taking place between the 2nd and 10th of October this year. And guess where? In Henley. Let's hear a bit of their conversation. Morning, thank you very much for joining us. So you're the programmer for the Henley Literary Festival, so I'm very excited to have you on board. So tell me, how long have you been involved in the festival? Oh, since the beginning. So it was actually originally my mum's idea um, and she started it. So I used to help out um, because I've always worked in events. So that was my side. And then it's become bigger and has taken on many different things. So for the last three or four years, I now run it. Um, I obviously call my mum and ask her like everyone would. But yeah, no, it's now my baby. I always say it was my first baby. And then I've had three real babies since. And I don't know which is the most hard work, actually. They all, they're all quite hard work. The festival is. Yeah, probably the hardest, actually. It is 15 this year. So, you know, we've been going for 15 years now, which I almost can't believe. And I think especially after last year. It's brilliant news that you asked up here. So I'm very, very excited. So tell me, what's it going to be like this year and Henley? So it is going to be a bit different from what we've done in the past. We've obviously been waiting for announcements and the announcements are looking very good for us at the moment. We're also having it with some caution because if things change, we want to be in a position where we can do that. So at the moment, we are sort of down to three main venues and then using an extra one at the weekend. So four altogether, whereas in the past we've had sort of seven or eight venues and we've just been a lot more specific on keeping it small. We've never built a... We've built a marquee to be our hub before, but we've never built a 500-seater because Henley is slightly lacking in 500-seaters. So we have built a 500-seater, which we can socially distance should we need to, to hit our normal 350, but hopefully we won't have to. At the moment, we've gone on sale with 70% because we just am not sure that everyone is feeling completely confident and we want people to feel safe. We might change that on event-by-event basis. So there's a lot of demand for one event. We will offer the people who bought tickets at the 70% the opportunity to return and then go on sale at full. Right. is our plan and, and we've got over 130 events across the nine days in Henley and we've also got a little virtual offering as well in September every Monday night in September we've got um, some virtual events coming to keep up with the virtual festival that we ran last year which was a huge success so it felt like what a good opportunity to continue that really We've got someone like Michael Holding, the cricketer, who isn't in the country and wouldn't be able to come. So actually, that way, we're having an opportunity. We've also got Britt Burnett, who, again, is in America and wouldn't be able to come. So there's a really sort of lovely mix. And the other thing is our 500 season marquee will be streamed live. So if people are further away or don't feel they want to come or also just can't make that time, you get 24 hours to watch it. I think COVID's given us a real opportunity with last year in that we had to go online and we had a really successful festival with 50 events online. And I think what we've learned is there's one, a want for it and a need for it. And people have um, been buying tickets a lot more to virtual than I thought would, actually. The ticket sales for virtual are going really, really well, as well as the ones in the 
venues themselves. So I think there are some people who are just so keen to get culture. I think we're ready and we want to go there. I hope that we're giving the impression and very much plan to give safety to our audience and make people feel comfortable. I'm very aware about not everyone is in the same place at the moment on what they want to do and what they want to get. Yeah. We've got the most amazing lineup this year. I still can't quite believe it. So if somebody's oh. never been to the Henley Literary Festival before, what are they going to expect? Well, the first thing I always say is I think our name can sometimes scare people off. I think literary makes people think that it's going to be full of Booker Prize winners and all novels and all very, very highbrow. And it absolutely does have that, which is brilliant. And we're very lucky. I mentioned Brooke Burnett and we've got um, James Scudamore. We've got we've actually got prize winners panels. So we've got panels like that. But we've also then, and this is the thing I always say, we've got something for everyone. You tell me what you like and I'll find you something. So we've got Joanna Lumley. We've got Sophie Ellis-Bexter. We've got Jed Mercurio, who wrote Line of Beauty. We've got Jeffrey Archer. We've got the comedian Tom Allen. We've also got other comedians in Rob Beckett. And Jack D. We've got novelists in Alexander McCall Smith. Uh, we've got children's novelists in Michael Pergo. The list this year is, I have to say, I can't believe how well it's gone. I, I, I don't, I think we've got our dream list. I don't Fantastic. think there's anyone we didn't get. There is something for everyone. Oh, one that's selling really well is the Vaxxers. So it's the two women behind the, the research team for the Oxford vaccine oh, who are coming on oh. that one. So it's, we literally cover from science to children's to gardening we've got the Soho househead gardener and also Gerald Stratford's with her he became famous over Twitter and Instagram during lockdown because he grows really big veg in his allotment that's what I love about the festival is there is something for everyone and our prices start from five pounds so I hope it's accessible for everybody how do we go about booking a ticket so you go on our website, um, which is henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk, or you um, give the box office call and all the numbers are on the website. And yeah, and there are lots of tickets available still. I think because the programme's so broad, we've had over the last few years quite a lot of sellouts quite early on. And I think the programme is so broad, it's really allowing for maximum capacities everywhere. I've really noticed that the ticket sales are coming in, they're brilliant they're as good as they have been in the past but it's just a far more broad numbers game in regards to what is selling really well but the Vaxxers has been the hot ticket so far it's quite multi-generational that one as well and I think that's been really good and we've got an amazing children's festival which I don't program so I'm always far like oh the children's program's amazing but we've got the Tom the Tom Gates um, author Liz Pichon and we've got Michael Pergo back again who always sells out and just is such a treat for the kids. So it sounds absolutely an amazing lineup this year. You've got everything from from science to celebrity, from music to television stars to to really strong authors as well. So that sounds very exciting. So can I encourage everybody to go to the Henry Literary Festival website, which is henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk? Yes. And check out the full programme. Harriet, will you be able to come back on the programme and tell us more about some of the specific um, programmes that you have? I'll have lovely to have a coffee and a chat with you. I'll do it as often as you want me. (laughs) Harriet, that is lovely. I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, I've got to admit, Julian, we are going to get Harriet back again because I think it's such a fabulous festival. And uh, looking forward really to her talking more about the other books that uh, she has and authors that we'll be, uh, we'll be able to see at the festival. So I can, yes. can yeah, encourage everyone. Really good. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. encourage everyone actually to look at the website and get your tickets, purchase yes. your tickets. 
And I think she's right about the word literary where some people, oh gosh, it's all highbrow, um, where it is, in fact, actually the Henley Book Festival, really. It is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it is. <laughs> and she mentioned a couple of gardening books, which is very appropriate because, of course, we're now going to talk about gardening. Heavens, are we? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I've got to say, it's not about gardening as in getting out there and doing any digging because I like gardening, I like looking at gardens and possibly mm. thinking about them and talking about them and pretending I know a bit about the history of them rather than actually doing anything about gardening. Mm. But I have been spending time in the garden and just enjoying being outside. So it's great to be actually looking at what books we have got. So you've got a first one, which is a cultural history of gardens. It is. In fact, actually, it, 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 it's one of my bargains because there's actually um, six for the price of one because okay. in fact it's actually the cultural history of gardens and it's in six volumes and it's published by Bloomsbury and it uh, originally published um, in 2016 and it and, and it's in an excellent collection because you're, you're saying oh well you know you, you enjoy the gardens but I think a lot of us go into the gardens and we have a look at oh, this is wonderful you look at the various plants but probably don't really know much about the creation of gardens or how they came about no. and this will actually help so it sounds, and it, it, it runs into a bit... uh, to, to the six volumes so you've got um, start with the antiquity, the medieval age, the renaissance, age of enlightenment, age of empire, and finally the modern age. And the, uh, the book, uh, the volume on antiquity covers the period from the 6th century BC to the 6th century AD, uh, and it delves into the rich, rich cultures throughout Europe, Africa, and Asia, and describes how in that period it was essentially the foundation, the template, if you will, of gardens of the future. And it discusses the emergence of advanced techniques uh, in horticultural and how centralised governments, even then, with their structures, uh, promoted highly sophisticated garden culture, not only for private gardens but public gardens too i remember in india when we used to go round the um like you know the old gardens um and you'd those beautiful waterways that would run yes. inside absolutely beautiful and you just think that's that's actually how you'd want it in a hot country absolutely and these these would be designed by the 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 mongol emperors absolutely, you know it's yeah. wonderful yeah. yeah absolutely and the medieval age um this covers the 7th to the 14th century that was a time of great change um and upheaval it oversaw great social and political changes uh the cultures um of for Christian West, Byzantium and Persian-influenced Islam, as well as the um, Andalus uh, movement created very different responses to the art of gardening. And this is what this volume explores. Renaissance, it goes, uh, traces from the late 14th century Italy up to the death of uh, André Le Nocque in, in France in 1700. This was a period of dynamism uh, and codification. We see the emerging um, of style and design in the formal gardens. And, you know, when people talk about, oh, this is a French garden and this is the period when um, this sort of codification and design of gardens came about. I know um, English Heritage have just redesigned Warwick Castle. Um, And they've redone the the gardens as um, they they would have been. And they're supposed to be absolutely fabulous. 
fantastic. And 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 in the Renaissance period, again, there's there was quite a lot of um, scientific discoveries um, as well as developments in engineering that helped yes. with garden yeah. design. Age of Enlightenment, as you understand, moves. This was a time when humans were wondering where their place is in the world, um, and the, the very heart of the debate was uh, was about culture and nature and history, uh, and the, offering the garden as a as a living experiment. And this looks at the design and planting of contemporary gardens in Europe, North America and China, which is very important, and the links between aesthetics and the politics of the age. And then, of course, when we come to the volume of the Age of Empire, this is covering the 19th century uh, into the early 20th century. Uh, and this was the period designing the industrial age in which Britain found itself, including the fast developing urbanisation of great chunks of the country. Uh, and at this time, um, gardens became an industry in themselves with the great Victorian necropolises to soothing public parks, parks which was the epitome of civilization um, for the modern an age. Uh, and they were all rich in symbolism as well, and you would see them featuring in, in art and poetry. Uh, and, uh, you know, Britain, in the, it, with its height of empire, was, was influential in all of that. But, of course, they were also getting implants from overseas, of which we'll find a little bit later. Yes, um, any which minute, helped. Any minute now, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. And the modern age quickly brings up to date which landscape gardening and how gardens were, were developing. And this, this volume also discusses um into the future as well beyond the 21st century now each volume um has been individually written um and they can be bought individually um each um has its own contributor but if you wish to collect the the series in hardback they cost a hefty 85 pounds per volume Ooh, that's commitment isn't it that is that but for the thrifty listener uh, the paperback editions cost a, a more moderate 26 pounds 99 per volume and just a quick tip, I discovered on the Bloomsbury website itself, if yeah. you want to buy them directly, you can get a 10% discount. Yeah, that sounds good. I do think when you've got a beautiful book, though, I mean, you're saying that one volume costs 80 £85. Pounds, 85 pounds, yeah, so 85 a volume. So it's obviously yeah. going to be full of yeah. pictures and very sumptuously mm. published. Yeah, it will and I be. do think some of those books deserve to be in a hardback, don't they? I think they do because they're because they are reference books. Yes. I mean, they, they, you know, because they're not books that you're going to take into the garden and say your azaleas go over here and your no, and, and, and no. your pansies go over there. This is this is history. It's and a, it, it is needs a commitment, to be though. A sumptuous book. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. but talking about history, you were mentioning about in the uh, 19th century, all mm. sort of like the plant hunters that yeah. went off to China. Well, that's my next book actually, and it's absolutely fabulous. It's called. For All the Tea in China. Mm -hmm. It's published by Sarah Rose and it's available in paperback by Arrow Books. And uh, it tells the story of this gardener. He's a Scottish gardener, botanist, plant hunter, and he's also an industrial spy. So I'm Ooh. sitting here with my cup of tea next to me and Robert Fortune, who's the, uh, the gentleman in question, um, actually went in 1849, uh, employed by the East India Company to make a clandestine trip into the interior of China. Now, this is a territory which is forbidden to mm -hmm. foreigners to steal the closely guarded secrets of tea. And it's a wow. brilliant book. So let's just listen to a short reading from the book before I talk about it. 
Chapter 1, Min River, China, 1845. I don't know what's happened there. Something's Ooh. gone drastically wrong, so we won't listen to a bit about the book, which oh. is a shame. <laughs> but there you are. It's, a, it's an idea. But it doesn't matter. We get the picture. Basically, he is an industrial spy. And China was a very closed off um, community. It's really interesting mm. when we look at them now. Yes. But we were desperate to buy tea from them and um and of course at that time we wanted a trading relationship and we used to go to china with all our goods and they didn't want anything from us they just wanted the cash which um which is possibly we ought to be saying no to some china goods now but anyway that's a different thing so. so um anyway one of the things that happened was the Opium Wars, which is a really sordid, a bit of a dirty period of our history, when, of course, what happened is that we sold opium to China um, in order to get the money to buy tea. So we were addicted to tea, and we gave China the opium so they, could be, they became addicted to opium. So it was really, really dirty. The Opium Wars happened, and as a result of the Opium Wars, what happened was the East India Company was frightened that China would stop selling tea to the British. <coughs> so they needed to find an alternative um, place to do it. Now, they identified that um, you could actually um, grow it in Chi- in, sorry, in India, mm-hmm. but they didn't actually know they had the right plants. And of course, they didn't actually know how to produce tea. So right. this poor guy, Robert Fortune, dressed up as a Chinaman and went off into the deepest, darkest um, places of India to go into pretending he was a Chinese um merchant to find Mm -hmm. out how they produce the tea and um it's a true story the ethics are definitely dodgy but the nerve and the invention to do this is absolutely amazing and of course what happened is he he bought all these tree plants or nicked all these um tea plantation tea plants and then of course he had to get them from china to india so they had to create something because they were put on board um uh, ships, which of course had to go through all these storms, and so most of the sh- mm-hmm. most of the plants died by the time they got to India. It's just the most amazing story, and I've got to say, the world of the Victorian plant hunters is just truly exciting. And dipping into this history, I I can't recommend it enough. I thought mm. it was absolutely amazing, especially as we are so. I mean, tea is our national drink. Yes, I think. absolutely. Um, it- and I was reading the other day that um, actually Scotland has just started a tea plantation. Oh, yes, yes. I think yeah, you, you were telling me the other yeah. day, yes. Yeah, you can buy it at Fortnum and Mason's. Yeah. It's a, a mere £200 for 100 grams. So I think I won't well, be tasting it just yet. Yes. And it's nine ladies dancing. So we'll have to uh, keep an eye on that. Oh, yes, indeed, indeed. Now, it's really interesting, just a, a quick 
thing before I go on to the next is yeah. you know when we're talking about we we we, we nicked the uh, the tea plants from China to to put it in our territories in India because that's exactly what Britain did to to Brazil we nicked the rubber plants oh, and we? took them over to 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 what was then Malaya and planted them then <gasps> because there's that. this great city in up in the Amazon um, which you know is Manaus which is beautiful a European style palaces and villas where yes. the the rubber barons made their fortunes and of course when britain nicked the plants and moved off but of course all that collapsed you know yes no. so oh we're, we're naughty bit, we're a bit we're, we're a bit a bit of a tinker aren't we really we are. you know, so, are we mm. we're in the past let's see yes exactly in the past but in there the we past. go anyway but there was another little interesting piece of um, information where gleaned from the newspaper yeah. and i don't know if you saw it was about a 19th century botanist who's just recently been identified up until now you know um was nothing was known about her and it was due to some press flowers and a poem was found inside a centuries-old botany book um, called The English Flora. Yeah, it's really lovely. And it sparked a quest by the Royal Horticultural Society to find out the owner. And and she's been identified as Isabella Ann Allen. And she was a gardener as well as a botanist in Madrasfield in Worcestershire. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, and, and, and until now... Very few people knew much about her, but there she was in the 19th century, was a great gardener and botanist. And pressing pressing her flowers, how lovely. Pressing, uh, pressing her flowers, yeah. And going on to another great, well, uh, another great gardener, um, uh, my next book is In Your Garden by Vita Sackville-West. Now, I did want to read you a little bit of an extract, but we don't know if the technical gremlins are going to make Shall we a give it a hiccup. But let's try. Okay, let's, let's have try a try. Very quickly. The, the very lovely small flowering tree of white and gold no it's not working no, is it no it's not because it jumped in um a little Halfway bit through. The, Never the, mind. Uh, before anyway it doesn't matter but um uh, vita sackville west um very famous as 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 a novelist but um the book i'm talking about is in your garden which was originally published by michael joseph in 1951 and it was reissued in facsimile by oxenwood press in 1996 and then later by francis lincoln in 2006 and this volume uh, which f- forms the first of a number was the result of a weekly garden column that Vita wrote for the Observer newspaper from 1946 to 1957. Isn't that fantastic uh, that we still have gardening um, yeah, articles yes. in our papers today? Exactly. Um, and it was probably around the 1950s that the Vita was persuaded to put what she called her these snippets mm-hmm. uh, into book form, um, though she was a little reluctant um, to do so. However, uh, why, I don't know, From judging from her introduction to the book, her column was extremely popular in the day because she goes on to say that she received 2,000 letters arising from one article alone. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not much of a gardener myself, as you know. My greatest achievement is being able to identify grass. Um, however, on <laughs> dipping into In Your Garden, I get the sense that Vita was something of a latter-day Delia Smith of the garden, full of encouragement and providing the right tips to give you the pleasant, trouble-free garden. 
Um, she goes on, um, the book goes, goes through each month of the year and gives advice on what to plant and where to plant it. And intermingled with the practical, uh, we're given thorough, a thorough grounding in the Latin names of various plants, flowers and shrubs. And we are treated to historical tidbits um, such as the Chemonanthus fragrance, which is also known as the, the winter sweet, which was here we go, introduced from China in yes. 1766. And the jasmine nudiflorum, which is the winter flowering jasmine, also came from China, but in 1844, but brought to England um, by someone other than Robert Fortune, I think. Yeah, I think we have masses of um, plants from, uh, from China. Yes, yes, yeah. we do. And of course, Q is our great repository yeah, of, of, yeah. of all of these. Now, Vita and her husband, Harold Nicholson, went on to create one of England's great gardens at Sissinghurst um, down in Kent, which I believe has the honour of uh, being one of the most visited gardens, if not in the whole realm, then certainly in the National Trust's collection. Yeah. And I, I visited myself, and it really is a pleasure to walk around and also to visit the folly in which she and Harold lived. Now, in, I mean, she's an amazing woman. In addition to her talents as a gardener, uh, as a horticultural writer, she also managed to fit in writing 12 volumes of poetry, 17 novels, one children's book, and nine nonfiction books. Okay. Just to put us all to shame. Absolutely, really absolutely to shame. Um, now, if you're looking to buy a copy of In Your Garden, it's still available, but mostly in the second-hand market. Um, I have seen one listed online, curiously, as new at a staggering £376.99. Um, however, the second-hand market does have them stocked at reasonably priced editions. Yeah, so, and really, I, I think a good second-hand bookshop is yes. where to find lots of treasures. Exactly, yes. absolutely. So I'm feeling a bit lazy. Uh, mm. And when I go into the garden, I, I don't really like gardening either. I like taking a book with me. And I'm going to choose as my next book, Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Mostly on the basis that it fits into the gardening theme as the lover is her gardener, of course. Of course. So this book is the one that sealed the 60s in our minds as a free-swinging society. It does. Now, the story is about Constant Chatterley, who's trapped in a loveless marriage, and her husband um, decides or suggests that she should find a lover. And it's very, yeah, very noble of him. So he mm -hmm. suggests you should find a lover and she finds a lover not amongst her friends, but from the, uh, from the garden, from her gardener with Mellors. And of course, it's a very passionate love affair. And what's really interesting about Lady Chatterley's lover is that it was Banned. So it was first published in Florence in 1928, but, the, but only a censored version uh, was published in the UK. And it wasn't until 1960 that Penguin dared to attempt to publish the novel in its entirety. And what had happened in order for them to publish it was actually that the Obscene Publications Act had come into force. And and that was preventing publication or broadcasting material considered to be obscene. And so Penguin Books decided that they were going to test the limits of the bill to try and work out what the definition of obscene right. was. 
you know, how are you going to check whether it's going to be depraved or corrupt? And I think this is, when you read it, it's just such an innocent book. Mm, mm. You really can't believe all the kerfuffle. And uh, what was really interesting is um, they, the prosecution worked out how many swear words were included, which was more than 80. Outrageous. Right. So if you get something like... Um, what was that Booker Prize winner that was just full of swear words? It's like every other word. <laughs> it's word like Shuggy Bane was it or something. But anyway, <laughs> so nothing at all like that. And the, pres- the prosecution didn't call any witnesses, but um, because they were concerned who would read the book. And so mm-hmm. what they did is they said, uh, they said, is it a book that you would wish your wife or even your servants to read? So this, so this was the shocking thing. And of course, everybody, you can imagine, can't you, that all the newspapers thought this is the most ridiculous thing, that in the yes. 1960s <clears throat> were worried about what your servants would think, as if you had servants. If yeah. you had them, yes. Yeah. So anyway, they lost. And on the first day that the book went on sale after the trial, bookshops across Britain sold out and Selfridges claimed to have sold 250 copies in minutes. Gosh. But the young female shop assistants were allowed to refuse to handle it. So <laughs> if they felt they were too sensitive, uh, they didn't Protecting leave. their modesty. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and over the next year, more than 2 million copies were sold. Um, wow. which is just amazing. And all I can suggest is that you read it now, not only is this great book, but right, just yes. really just to judge what what it was all on about. Yeah. And uh, uh, yes, and the sem- sensitivities of that time. Um, but interesting that even in 1960, you know, where it was the, 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 the barristers and the prosecution could assume that people had servants. And by that, I don't think they mean, meant a Mrs. Miggins that came in to do the dusting once a week. They yes. meant employed servants. Yeah. yeah. But censorship is a really important topic. I do think it that is. you censor a book and actually sales just go wild. Yes, they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, particularly, um, uh, and often in the case of Lady Chatley's Lover, was a, was a, is a novel worth worth reading, but it springs to mind um, Spycatcher oh, yes. um, uh, by Peter Wright. From the um, MI5. Yes, yes. I mean, he wrote um, his book, and um, uh, and I have to say, it's, it's the most boring book you could imagine. It really was was quite turgid. And I was working for Heinemann at the time, yeah. and of course, Margaret Thatcher was in power, and she did the, the greatest service to to Peter Wright and to the public. She actually banned it. Yes. Well. <laughs> So, of course, that meant that there was a clamour all over the place for the book. But, of course, what she didn't um, take into account was while she sort of stamped on uh, stamped on us, um, there was Heinemann Australia that was publishing the Australian edition. So what we did was we just imported it from Australia via Holland, who was an AE, a member of the EU, yeah. and they could be shipped legally into the UK oh. from Holland because we were in the EU, in the EU at the time. Yes. So, of course, all that blew up in the face and turned it into a bestseller if she kept a trap shut no, it was really. literally the most boring book yeah. and the sales would have got nowhere absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. amazing and, and just quickly so much so on my shelf i've got one that was pirated in india ah there you are <laughs> everybody got in on the act 
Absolutely. <laughs> you are listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news. And we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So Julie and I would like to thank you all for listening to Harriet Reed Ryan from the Henley Literary Festival and to Jonathan Crane for talking about his latest book, We Need to Talk, published by Lightning Books, which is out in our bookshops now. So other books we've been recommending today are... Uh, we begin at the end by Chris uh, Whitaker, published by Zafri. When She Was Good by Michael Rowbottom, published by Sphere. Marcus Rashford's You Are a Champion, Pan Macmillan. Adventures in Time by Dominic Sandbrook, particular books. Why Meditate? Because It Works by Julian Lavender, published by Yellow Kite. For All the Tea in China by Sarah Rose, published by Arrow. In Your Garden by Vita Sackville-West, published by Francis Lincoln. Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence, published by Penguin Books. And finally, A Cultural History of Gardens in Six Volumes, published by Bloomsbury. So next week, we're going to be chatting with Paul Olufsen Staub, who is a great novel based on the forgotten heroes and heroines flying in the Air Transport Auxiliary, which, of course, was based in White Waltham during the war. Just down the road. Absolutely. And because of that, we're also going to have a little bit of a feature on Spitfires because uh, they're just a marvellous plane. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11am and 12 noon on River Radio. Or you can actually listen on, um, on the uh, Listen Again feature on our website. You just need to register and then you can make sure you don't listen to a show. So thank you very much indeed for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.